This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And, of course, our topic, what else? The global coronavirus pandemic. We haven't changed the focus of the show just for today. <laughs> no. <laughs> Same thing as always. Which is why we haven't changed the title. <laughs> Dr. Oz. You've seen him on TV. You've seen him everywhere. He's a popular doctor in this country, and he will be on the podcast today talking about the pandemic, its impact on kids, and how the vaccine trials are going. Speaking of the vaccine, the U.S. government has come out with its vaccine distribution plan. We'll get into how it is supposed to work. There's an experimental drug that might be helping people recover faster from the virus, a possible treatment, so we'll get into that. And remember when there was a rush for ventilators? Well, it was thought that they were a big key to keeping the sickest virus patients alive since then. Doctors have been rethinking the importance of ventilators. And a super spreader wedding that we'll talk about. Uh, People who have died linked to this, they didn't even go to the event. The Big Ten Conference now says it's going to play football this fall. Will the other conferences that aren't playing follow shortly? It's all on the show today, but we start with Dr. Oz. He talked to Bridget Quinn from 1010 Wins in New York and started talking about schools and kids. First of all, the kids are going to mirror whatever emotion you share with them. So if you're calm, collected, and confident, they will be as well. And so I've told my grandkids who are back in school, by the way, uh, they go to school in Florida, so it's a little little different scenario. But uh, same kinds of conversations are taking place that the CDC, which is the the government's agency that looks at these issues, is very clear what needs to happen for schools to open safely. Uh, The guidelines make sense. For example, they don't want all the kids hanging on top of each other. Uh, Everyone needs to be in their own classroom. So if one classroom gets ill, if one child gets ill, the whole class can go home for two weeks, have a vacation, you know, quarantine from home while the rest of the school stays open. And not everyone gets to school at the same time, that everyone goes home at the same time. We don't eat lunch together anymore. But that's just going to take place for a few months because we believe that the vaccine, the data will be available to us within two months. And if it's as successful as we hope, then by the end of this year, we'll start vaccinating people who are high risk. And once the vulnerable population and the doctors and nurses get vaccinated, it makes it much safer for society. And kids, thankfully, don't pay a big price if they happen to get COVID-19. So once the teachers and the grandparents are safe, then it's going to be much easier for kids to stay in school without problems. You know, I'm going to record what you just said and and play that for my high schooler because that's really you touched on everything. That's a good way to put it and to and to reassure them, I think. And it sounds like you are optimistic that there will be a vaccine by the end of the year. Well, you know, I've been having uh, the White House task force members on my show and we have, you know, we become a, the, the COVID-19 headquarters, just trying to dissipate the best information we have uh, as quickly as we get it. And then I was told by the testing czar at Mojar, by the way, they're saying 150 million of these card-based point of care tests to schools just so we can test all the kids to know who's sick because they don't have any symptoms usually. But they, uh, they also, um, the White House task force is letting me know that the last patient enrolled in the first 30,000 patient trial is this week. So now everyone's already in the trial. So we now we need to wait a couple of weeks to see other side effects. And also, is it really effectively reducing the chance of getting COVID-19? If that bears out, and we should know that by November, then within you know a month or two, we'll be able to start giving vaccinations to to the frontline workers. And, you know, in, in China, they just announced uh, yesterday that they've actually immunized hundreds of thousands of doctors and nurses with their vaccine. So it's already starting in other parts of the world. If we just look outside the U.S., we see examples of success and some failures. I mean, Israel just reshut down again, but we're seeing lots of examples of success. So let's be smart for the next few months until we get to the finish line. 
And speaking of vaccines, you have to get that flu shot this year, right? There is no excuse this year. I understand that a lot of times people say, you know, I don't get that sick when I get the flu. Why would I bother taking it? I'm worried about side effects. Uh, But here's the deal. Uh, This year, you don't want to be confused with having COVID-19 if you do happen to get the flu. And you don't want to get them both at the same time. So of all the years, instead of only half the population getting the flu shot this year, I really want it to be much, much higher. And then please, only a third of the population is resistant to getting COVID-19. I just want to talk honestly to that group of folks. This is a vaccine that has so meticulously been examined by the nine major pharma companies that are involved in it. And these guys, you know, their reputations are completely dependent on this thing being safe. So there's no such thing as a completely 100% safe anything. If you give 100 million people any pill, product, injection, whatever, you're going to have an issue. But this is about as safe as it'll be when it's released. And if it's not safe, it will not be released. We're waiting for uh, Mayor de Blasio to give the word on when indoor dining can resume in New York City. Once it does, and if you're going out to dinner indoors in the suburbs, how do you stay safe, Dr. Oz? I would ask questions that you normally don't ask of a restaurant, like how many times an hour do they change the air in this facility and what kinds of filters do you have? I, you know, I'm back in my studio at CBS and I only did it because God bless the building on, you know, t- they, they actually have a ventilation system that changes the air in my studio seven times an hour. That's the same as I have in my operating room at Columbia Presbyterian, you know, New York Press. So I mean, we, we can make a huge difference and make indoor dining seem like it's outdoor if we're really careful about, uh, you know, making sure it's a well ventilated uh, air purified space. And also, obviously, you can't pack people in. When I talk to the task force about the key to success, of all the things we have to worry about, most of them don't help that much. The things that really help are wearing a mask and being in a, avoiding a super spreader event, uh, like being in a crowded restaurant that's poorly ventilated without a mask. And so if you're in a restaurant, you got to take your mask off to eat. If it's too crowded or if it's poorly ventilated, it sets you up for failure because one person in that big restaurant being ill can make many others ill. We want to avoid those scenarios. Yeah, wear that mask. Dr. Oz, so wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much. Who doesn't like something for free? especially if that something happens to be a vaccine. The U.S. government rolling out its vaccine distribution plan says it'll be free. But uh, is it really free? How's it going to work? With us to explain, Dr. Amish Adalja, a senior scholar at Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security, served as an advisor to FEMA, other government health agencies on pandemic response and preparedness. So doctor is making the vaccine free enough to entice people to go out and get one. I think it is important to make sure that there's not an out-of-pocket cost for the person getting vaccinated, although we all know that it is coming out of our taxes and, and the national debt, but, but that's kind of a longer-term thing that people don't think about. But I don't think that that's necessarily enough. We're going to have to convince people to show them the data and be transparent about the safety and efficacy of this vaccine, because we know that there is a vaccine hesitancy movement, an anti-vaccine movement that is already poised to attack this vaccine even before we even have it approved or for emergency use by the FDA. And we know during pandemics in the past, such as 2009 H1N1, we had a a hard time getting the vaccine uptake very high. So our our work is really cut out for us as public health and infectious disease professionals. So yeah, your hopes on that going off without any hitch and what does it look like in terms of the transparency? Because let's say I'm not on the fence. Free. Great. Let me go get this thing when it's available for me. I'll wait it out. But if I am in the crowd of doubt, I think, number one, it was rushed. And number two, oh, now it's free because they really want everybody to take this thing. I am not going to get it. That's definitely one of the narratives that you're going to hear. But So that's why we have to be very careful. 
that the FDA emergency use process is, is something that people have confidence in, because if a vaccine doesn't get into the arms of Americans, it's really a worthless vaccine. So we want to make sure that people are, are going to take this vaccine. And, and I think it's important because there, there has been precedent of the FDA's process being meddled with during this pandemic when it comes to, for example, hydroxychloroquine or convalescent plasma. So there is reason to be skeptical about that. And we want to make sure that that doesn't happen again. And, and I think that uh, we're going to be looking at lots of different signals to try and understand how effective this vaccine is going to ultimately be. And hopefully what we'll do is get the American people, at least the majority of them, behind the vaccine when it is available. Otherwise, we will be battling this virus for, for quite some time. Dr. Amish Adalja, Senior Scholar, Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. Drug maker Eli Lilly says an experimental drug is helping people recover from the virus. It says it reduces the level of virus in the body and lowers the chance someone would need to go to the hospital. Is this the big therapeutic we've been waiting for, especially if uh, we take a while to get that vaccine? Dr. Peter Chen is director of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. He's been helping run the Eli Lilly drug trials. So, doctor, this is a possible antibody treatment, yeah? Right. It's a monoclonal antibody treatment, um, really the first in class for this uh, the treatment of as far as COVID-2. Um, as far as classifying it, I mean, I, I guess you want to give it a title, is that what you're thinking? Yeah. What would you say this is? Uh, you know, again, I, I would qualify it by saying this is a press release. And so, um, <laughs> you know, the, the publication is pending. I, I, I know that uh, they are working on it. Uh, and uh, But I think... Um, if anything, I would just say the you know preliminary results are just very encouraging. The preliminary results from the the first in class monoclonal antibody study against SARS-CoV-2 or something to that effect. So, is this something though, in your view, that uh, within the not too distant future, that somebody who is diagnosed with COVID-19 but is symptomatic enough that perhaps they need to go to the hospital, but are not yet, you know, uh, in dire straits. Is that what this treatment is for, as opposed to some of the other therapeutics out there that are really for more late-stage disease? That's exactly right. You know, this is a therapy that we can use very early on, and that's actually how the Phase two trial was designed, was to give it to patients very early on that actually weren't meeting criteria to go to the hospital. And so that we can really try to prevent them from ever needing to go to the hospital. How early would this depend on? Is it like I'm seeing symptoms and now I've got my test or I've got my test and now I'm at home and I'm starting to get real sick? Where in the uh, timeline does it fall? For me, I think uh, it would be the earlier the better. Um, we don't know the nuances of it all yet, but the reality is is that the earlier you can treat someone, the less damage that virus is going to cause to the body. Uh, and uh, if you can stem that earlier, then uh, it really will prevent them from having the symptoms that require hospitalization. Because once that happens, uh, the damage is done, is, uh, and it could lead to many other complications where if you try to suppress the viral load, it's not going to have as much effect. Okay, so, so let's let's see if we can play this out a bit. Uh, so let's say uh, down the road uh, the FDA gives initially, as they've been doing, emergency authorization to use this. Uh, and let's say hypothetically you have a patient not feeling well, uh, has the classic symptoms in your view of COVID-19. How do you treat that patient if you have this particular weapon in your arsenal? So 
the workflow has, I can see it is, if someone comes with symptoms that are consistent with COVID-19, then we would do a test for them. If if you have the rapid test available, that's the best thing that you can do because then we can have those answers sometimes within minutes, uh, depending on the test that you're using. And so if they come back positive and then you have the drug available, you can actually give them an infusion uh, and the infusion is only, for, only over one hour. And then you've given them that one uh, treatment and that's all they need is one time infusion. And they can go home and hopefully prevent them from ever getting worse so that they need to come to the hospital. Dr. Peter Chen at Cedars Sinai Medical Center. Scientists at the Oak Ridge National Lab have been looking into the virus. They made a big discovery that helps explain the varied symptoms of COVID-19 and why ventilators don't always help the sickest patients. That could send the search for treatments in a whole new direction. Dr. Dan Jacobson, chief scientist for computational systems biology at Oak Ridge National Lab, he talks to KYW's Carol McKenzie about what they found. So we, we found that the genes responsible for synthesizing hyaluronic acid were highly upregulated in the Genes that encode proteins that normally degrade it were downregulated. So again, we're, we have something going out of control, pumping out lots of hyaluronic acid and not being able to degrade it. Now imagine you're creating a lot of that hyaluronic acid, and now all this liquid is also leaking into the same area from the permeability of the blood vessels. So you have this water hitting that hyaluronic acid, and yeah, you get this hydrogel, like jello, um, forming on the, the, the linings of your alveoli, and that's, you can imagine trying to, to breathe through jello. It doesn't work really well. It's preventing the gas exchange that normally happens on the inside of the lung. And that explains why many patients, when they're in intensive care and we put them on ventilators, um, often that's not enough. And, and part of that is you, it doesn't matter how much oxygen you pump into the lungs if they're, if they're blocked by this hydrogel, by this jello-like substance. If we look at this system-wide, what this out-of-control cycle would do, another function of one of the bradykine receptors is actually um, involved in pain. So if you overactivate one of the other bradykine receptors, you get a, a large pain response. That's already known to be involved in really sore muscles and, and sore joints. So the myalgia, the, the, the pain in muscles and joints in COVID-19 fits perfectly with this bradykine and thorn model. This, you know, angioedema, this outflowing of water and, and and hyaluronic acid in the lungs that we see fits perfectly. A lot of the neurological symptoms in COVID-19, there have been a, several studies. In fact, um, one, another one just came out recently showing how fluid is, is leaking in the brain and causing pressure and disruption in neurological function. Perfectly fits with the Brady kind of storm model. And so what we think is going on is at points of infection around the body, this, this virus can infect multiple tissues. And as it bounces around the body, and some of that is probably stochastic of where it ends up hitting in some people, you get this broad range of symptoms of how, probably based on how many different places in your body, how many different organ systems um, the virus has been successful colonizing. You get these local dysregulations of, of RAS and bradykinin. And that keeps matching up with the symptoms that we see as those as those organ systems are affected with bradykinin. We would predict, and they match up really well, the sort of resulting symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, so it gives us an interesting model that, that then we can we can test and attack. And the good news is there are a number of different existing pharmaceuticals that can help 
attack or downregulate different parts of, of this model. And there have been a, a few small clinical studies with really encouraging results of, of the drugs that we had predicted to have an effect are showing really encouraging results in small studies. And we need to get them into proper, large, well-designed clinical trials. A wedding is a time to celebrate. People at a wedding in August in Maine celebrated. Then tragedy hit. And at least seven people died. None of them even went to the wedding. So with us to talk about this is Dr. Ali Nouri, molecular biologist and president of the Federation of American Scientists. Doctor, it seems like we've got a long way to go before getting back to normal with these big events. As we learn more and more about it, it's now pretty well recognized that the virus is what you might call airborne or aerosolized. And so in the, in the case of this wedding, it turns out, as you said, there were a large number of people, 65 people. Apparently, they weren't wearing masks. Um, they were indoors for a prolonged period. And so some of them got infected and took those infections elsewhere, and that really cascaded into a number of other outbreaks. Uh, so, so one of the things that happened is apparently one of those guests happens to lives with somebody who works in a nursing home. And through that household contact, uh, the virus was transmitted through the nursing home, and that's where seven of the tragic um, deaths uh, occurred, unfortunately. So uh, I guess there are two questions really here. One is, it's well, really one question, which is how do we prevent it? But, but it's two parts to that question, because on the one hand, you've got the people who go to weddings like this, where there are no masks, very little, if any, social distancing. But on the other hand, you have the so-called innocent bystander who has no idea where the person maybe they're talking to or they're meeting somewhere else where they were the week before, and therefore they are now subject to infection. How do you deal with all that? Yeah, it's, it, it, it's an incredible challenge. And again, it's really because of two things. One, you can transmit the virus where you're in, when you're asymptomatic. That makes it incredibly difficult to contain because you just don't know who's sick. Um, and, and, and second is what I said earlier, which was it's a, it's a uh, respiratory virus um, that is coming out of our respiratory system on both these big droplets that fall to the ground quickly within six feet, but also these tiny little aerosols that stay airborne for a really long time. And so masks are really important. Hygiene is really important. Maintaining that physical separation is really important. But the thing that we need to be talking a lot more about that we haven't been talking as much about is ventilation. Because again, those aerosols in a room can build up and infect other people in the room. And the way you get rid of them is you open up your windows you ventilate that space, and you let the fresh air come in and uh, circulate with the, with the old air. But to your, to your second point, uh, what do you do with the innocent bystander? That's really where people have to be vigilant. I mean, we all have to be really careful who we socialize with, who we interact with. Now, these two individuals, they're living in the same household, the, the individuals that uh, from uh, transmitted the disease uh, ultimately to the rehab facility. So it's a difficult thing to do, um, but we just have to be really vigilant who we interact with. And ultimately, really, the thing that we need that's going to take us out of this mess is rapid, frequent testing. 
So ultimately, we want to be in a place where each one of us can get tested every morning, get the results within 10, 20, 30 minutes, and make a determination as to whether or not we go out and talk to other people, go to work, go to the grocery store, so on and so forth. Dr. Ali Nouri, molecular biologist, president of the Federation of American Scientists. Doctor, thanks. The Big Ten and Pac-12 decided no football this fall. While the Pac-12 is sticking with it, the Big Ten reversed course and says it's going to start up in mid to late October. That's thanks in part to having cheaper and rapid testing for the virus. Luke McGrath, breaking news editor at Bloomberg News, talks to WBBM's Cisco Cotto about the decision. Players, coaches, uh, politicians, we saw President Trump tweeting about it. Uh, they were sort of surrounded with pressure to, to play this season, but it was really... Um, it seems to be uh, enhanced testing capabilities that was able to sort of push us over the finish line to actually allow for a season to happen this fall and, and even be potentially ready in time for the college football playoffs. Yeah, that's one of the things that's really interesting is is just the timing of all this. It seems like these players really have to get ramped up to play a full contact sports, one that's really hard on your body. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right now the, the plan is to start the weekend of October 24th, so just a little bit over a month and, and players are going to start being tested every day. And there are, uh, is, is a sort of green light system in place for both the, the teams and the local populations to sort of monitor um, the COVID situation in each area. And, you know, there's not a ton of room for error right now. Teams are scheduled for eight uh, regular season games and then every team in the Big Ten whether it's the conference championship or not, having a ninth additional game. Um, but if a game has to get postponed or canceled, there's really not a lot of wiggle room. So um, as long as the testing protocols go as planned, it could work. But as you've seen with a lot of other you know, college football games and sports more generally, postponements have popped up all over the place. Well, and the pressure uh, seems especially strong given what's going on on so many college campuses with so many people getting COVID. I know. I mean, especially, I mean, what stuck out to me is Ed Odron uh, just yesterday saying, I think it was three quarters of his team had already uh, tested positive for the virus. Um, Things like that seem like this might just be, I don't know, it could end poorly. I, I, you know, as a sports fan, I hope it all goes well, and especially player safety and campus community safety in in mind that it all goes according to plan. But it just seems like, um, you know, there's been a lot of positive cases especially on college campuses across the country. And, um, you know, putting football uh, back into play sort of mixes it up even further, though. Uh, the Big Ten is not planning to have any fans aside from maybe families of uh, team uh, players and coaches coming to stadiums for the season. Thanks for all of the information. That is Luke McGrath, breaking news editor at Bloomberg in New York. The Pac-12, now the odd man out, is the only Power Five conference not playing football. Should that change? Nick Ford, offensive tackle, University of Utah, one of the leaders of the We Are United movement. Nick, how are you feeling, especially now with the Big Ten playing again? Yeah, I feel like we could make it work, but when we originally came back, we really didn't have that uh, said bubble, which would have been difficult to contain on campus in place. So, I mean, we really had no guidelines or no, um, you know, say-so on what we do, how we do it, how we get tested. And um, it was it was really a slippery slope. And, you know, definitely if, you know, some people are able to figure it out, there's no reason why we couldn't be able to. The biggest worry from you is what is it? catching COVID and having a bad case? Is it spreading it to someone else and not realizing it? Is it cases coming through and then try to get the season going, but then you couldn't? Say everything really, because when you, when it comes down to it, I mean, COVID is a very serious thing and thinking about in the short run, yeah, you may get it and not be able to play. Think about in the long run, 
you know, you might get myocarditis and a bunch of things that might affect you for the rest of your life, you know, some permanent damage to your heart and, you know, getting season started and it ending or however it may be. I mean, there's a lot of scenarios um, which can turn out bad, but there's also a lot of scenarios that can turn out good. So, I mean, it's just about finding that right balance of the two. And remind the listeners, for those who haven't been keeping up step by step with this, how things are for you, your team right now, your conference. Uh, well, the University of Utah has been doing really good. Uh, Coach Whittingham and the training staff and Dr. Petron have been taking real good care of us, being tested minimum of one times a, a week. And then if we get back into season, be tested on game day. So, I mean, uh, here at the University of Utah, we've had, you know, a good experience. Nick Ford, Jr., University of Utah. The flu and COVID-19 are different viruses, but could be in a way intertwined. Researchers in Europe created a model of transmission of COVID-19 in Belgium, Italy, Norway, and Spain. It calculates that higher rates of flu infections would be associated with increased coronavirus transmission in each of the countries. In Italy, one researcher says higher rates of flu vaccination have been linked with lower rates of death from COVID-19. He also says a U.S. study of nearly 12,000 people tested for COVID-19 found that those who had flu vaccines were less likely to have a positive test. None of these studies proves that flu vaccines affect spread of COVID-19 or a person's risk for it. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Subscribe and stay well. 